We, we operate on that peak stress curve. You have to be able to be right at the top there. If you're if you're over the top, your performance drops, or if you're under aroused, then yeah, you're unable to um, execute what you need to do. And it certainly wasn't a case that we nailed that every time. And again, with age and looking back more purposefully, I could see how I could have done it better. But the, but the methodology that we, we used was that sequence of, of planning, briefing, executing the mission and debriefing. So in the plan, we started our focus. So we, we, we planned as a team, we were in the same room as a team, and we, we roughed out what we were gonna do. And that would normally be the 80% plan. Then we move into the briefing stage where we communicate the plan to the team based on the most current information. And it's through that briefing we're, we're focusing that little bit more. And it's something that organizations do terribly. And to be brutally honest, so do sports teams. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a high-performing leader who was born to fly fighter jets, thrives on highly complex and demanding environments, and is the co-author of On Time, On Target. He started his career as a fighter pilot for the Royal Australian Air Force before founding the Christian Thomas Group, which provides humanitarian support to developing nations and directing W.E. Johns and Sons. His current roles including founder and CEO of Mode Development's property company, publisher of Australian Aviation, and high-performance coach and speaker of Afterburner Australia and New Zealand. I'm honoured and privileged to introduce to you a high achiever who focuses on flawless execution, successfully transferred his high-level skills of flying at over 1,000 kilometres an hour to the business world, and is a thriving entrepreneur. Christian Bukusis. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So flying in the sky has been a passion since you were very young. Were you that kid at school that would grab a sheet and jump off things to see if you could fly? I was, a, I was an aviation nerd right from the outset. I don't remember being in anything else. And if it flew or made noise, I, I was in, in raptures. Uh, I've I've just never really known anything else. And I guess, interestingly, aviation has, has shaped every part of my life. And I, I find it fascinating uh, nearly 40 years later that in some way, shape or form, uh, I'm still involved in the community and sharing the lessons that I've learned. It's a, it's a really is it's an amazing industry, an amazing life and career to have, to have had and to be still having, I guess. Yeah, look, I, I love that time when I've jumped out of planes and you just kind of, you know, there's something about just being up in the sky and, you know, whether it's actually in a plane or or outside the plane, it's just a fascinating experience to seeing the world from yeah, a sure different perspective. I'm not sure about getting out of them. I, I quite like the, the view and the security of being in them. Uh, and I think, I think what it boils down to, and it's something that is getting more traction in the business world now, this whole concept of a fresh set of eyes, a, a different perspective. And I think with aviation, it gives you that different perspective because you're above everything and, and you see context. And I think one of the really unique things about aviation is you you really see the fragility of the world and 
and really how many people there are uh, and, and perhaps some of the things that we uh, take on board a little personally really aren't meant, meant that way, that we're all just small parts of a very, very big machine that is humanity. Yeah, definitely. So going back to your younger years, you know, where did you kind of fit into the picking order at school and, and how was that time for you? I think because I had this sense of purpose and, and vision and and I, and I know this from going to school reunions and seeing uh, my uh, friends and colleagues from school uh, now that they're uh, much more old, much older. Uh, I was just always uh, the anomaly. Uh, I just they just knew that that uh, Chris just wanted to be the, the fighter pilot, just wanted to be a pilot. Uh, and everything I did shaped my school years. I studied science, not because I was good at it. In fact, I was terrible. I was terribly, terrible academic at everything, really. Uh, but everything I did was always about uh, becoming a pilot. And in my part time, I read everything about aviation. I was reading books about World War Two when I was eight years old. And my entire bedroom was just covered in a aviation posters. And every minute uh, I could get away out to Amberley, I would, or work experience. I'd go to an army base, fly helicopters. My uncles were helicopter pilots. I'd go and spend time with them. Everything I did was uh, was immersing myself in aviation. So uh, I was not uh, in the. I was not cool at school. I was not bad at school. I, I've probably defined myself as being the most average human being uh, uh, on the planet. Uh, the most average at everything. I can do. Sport, okay. Academics, okay. I flew, okay. Uh, so kind of that jack of all trades. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, school was, was fine. I didn't have any real bad experiences there. Um, I, but but I definitely uh, I, I definitely prioritised my sport over my school. I rode in the first eight. Uh, I, I ran. I played first six volleyball. Uh, but I was also in, in my spare time at TAFE uh, learning aviation theory, uh, and just yeah, wanting to accelerate that journey to being a pilot as, as fast as I possibly could uh, until I spent, I would walk home from school straight past the recruiting center for the Air Force and once a week I would pop in. I'm sure they just got so sick of me walking in that door every day um, and just, just seeing what's, what new posters were available, what's what's the latest and greatest uh, and I became a first name basis with most of the recruiting staff there. So you moved into the rural aviation, you know, so the Air Force there in Australia. And what was it involved in preparing yourself for that first solo flight in a fighter plane? And, you know, what was going through your head when you sat on the runway preparing to launch on your own? Look, I think that's the realization of a dream that moment. And uh, I was only 22 at the time. So to, to realize that dream then and there, it's pretty amazing. A lot, a lot of people don't achieve uh, their life ambition. A lot, a lot of people don't really get what they want out of life. I think statistically, 8% of people achieve what they want to achieve in life. So, so to achieve that at 22 was pretty cool. Not, not that I had that thought process in my mind, but I definitely had the emotion inside of me. Uh, the didn't get to enjoy it too much though, because the speed of the aircraft and the amount of information I had to retain and get the damn thing airborne and back again without having an accident. Uh, and the day I did my first solo, the weather was particularly bad also. Uh, so so you're always, as a fighter pilot and as a pilot in general, I think you just always have this degree of apprehension. You, you're in this flying machine, you're hurtling uh, above the earth. So you always have this uh, very respectful relationship with the aircraft because you know that uh, if you're not on your game, it can it can bite you. So yeah, it was, it was super amazing. But the Air Force is very clever in what it does. It's an incremental process. So by the time 
you go first solo in a Hornet. You, you're already done it in the simulator. You've got hundreds of hours flying. Uh, in my case, a Mackie, a smaller jet, a PC-9. The whole process from the planning, the briefing, the execution of the mission, the debriefing, the whole methodology and the way of way we think as fighter pilots was imbued into us from from day one so so it was really just the next step like it's probably the biggest one that you the biggest small step that you make uh, but it's something that you're quite comfortable in, in doing and when you're that age you're so immersed in it it's every fiber of your being so you really you really just uh, get on with it yeah and you can feel the passion passion in your voice there you know like that that real love of flying and Oh, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. And, and I, I, as a coach now, I'm an executive level coach and CEOs and people that, that do really amazing things. When you see a lot of the world working with um, high performance football teams, first grade uh, football teams, when you look back on it, you still realize no one's ever done it. No one else has done this. Only 400 fighter pilots flew the Hornet in its, in its, career, in its whole history. Uh, it's more people play test cricket for Australia than have flown as fighter pilots in the Royal Australian Air Force. And and you really do look back fondly now and appreciate that, how lucky uh, I, I was to have that opportunity. It's it, we're very grateful and has, has shaped me as a, as a person. So, yeah, I do feel an emotional and visceral attachment with flying fighter jets and, and how what it's done. Um, the doors it subsequently opened up for me as well. Yeah. So going into battle is, is a whole different ball game than doing test flights. You know, so are there any missions that really stand out as you're going, look, I executed that perfectly and the outcome was favorable? Interesting use of the word perfect because we don't use that word as fighter pilots. We fundamentally understand perfection's unattainable, but we get as, we, we get as close to perfect as we can. Uh, and and we, we, like our execution rate is around that 98%. So whatever we say we do, we'll achieve it 98% of the time. So that's about as close to perfect as we reckon you can get. Uh, I never flew the aircraft in battle. The closest I got to that was uh, flying a Hornet, uh, sorry, flying a tornado when I was in the UK to intercept some Russian aircraft. Uh, my, I guess, battle experience came when I moved to Afghanistan as a civilian when I was medically discharged from the Air Force. Uh, but we have this saying, you train the way you fight. I think it's something we don't do very well in business. In business, we treat every day every meeting, every opportunity as though it's the first one we've ever had. Uh, but but we always knew that if we trained the, the way that we were going to execute in battle, it would go fairly seamlessly. And and the guys that did fly combat operations, they generally said flying combat operations was easier than the training missions uh, because of the amount of pressure we put ourselves on and the expectation we set in training. And I think that's very telling, and it's a very fighter pilot culture, uh, is you... you it doesn't matter what the environment, you always try to perform to the best of your individual ability. And when you're operating as a formation and as a team, that everyone is everyone is uh, is ultimately trying to achieve that aim. And when you do it collectively as a team, then amazing things happen. And, and really, um, that's the crux of a high-performing team, whether it's a football team, an executive team. A high-performing team is still about individual accountability. And when each individual in the team takes ultimate accountability, you're able to work much more effectively uh, as a team, particularly when it comes to trust, integrity, credibility, and really understanding that when someone says they're gonna do something, they're gonna do it. And, and for me, that was the biggest surprise when I, when I moved into the business, was how often people say they'll do something and it never gets done. It, it, it's mind-blowing. Even today, mm. I still struggle with it. 
because from where we came from, if you said you'd do something, you'd do it, and, yeah. and it was just a given. Yeah. So, 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 so the long, the short version of that story is whether it's battle, whether it's training, it doesn't matter. The, the key is you treat it exactly the same, and you put the same amount of effort in. Yeah, it's quite interesting, and you kind of touch on something there that you know I talk with a lot of CEOs around as well. Is you know, say if you're a, in performance, whether you're a dancer, singer, actor, athlete, um, fighter pilot that you spend more than 95% of your time planning, training, preparing, and less than 5% of your time actually performing or executing um, in, for a real outcome. And when you look at CEOs, it's complete opposite. They're kind of on the whole time, as though they're trying to perform 95% of the time, but they're not really preparing or planning for it. So it's interesting to hear that you've got that same um, sense when you're working in that executive world. Yeah, and I don't think it's their fault. I just, it's that old saying, they don't know what they don't know. I mean, business is, is, is totally reactive. Uh, and there is an element of, of being reactive, obviously, where the, the world is very fluid. Uh, but the more you plan, the better you're able to, to react and, and take advantage of that. So uh, I think organizations that are very uh, high performance, very adaptive, very agile, they're able to do that because their systems and processes are, are, are very established, but they're also not very onerous. They, mm. they, they provide a, a framework in which to move and maneuver up the business. And uh, when I do my embedded coaching, where I work for a minimum of 90 days with, a, with an executive team, it's amazing that within it, it actually takes organizations up to 90 days to really figure out what they're trying to achieve. And, and by default, you realize how over optimistic uh the average leadership team is with setting goals uh and and i think that's the real challenge goals are set that are unrealistic uh, people lose interest and then we become reactive because we create an excuse matrix where we say well hey it's not my fault that i can't achieve the goal it's someone else's mm-hmm. uh, someone created this problem not me uh, which is the complete opposite way in which fighter pilots think which is well the weather was bad the target was covered but did i did the best of my ability to deal with that situation. And did we have a policy and procedure in place, which we call that SAP, Standard Operating Procedures? Did we already have something in place that enabled it to us to deal with that when it happened? So when it happened, even though we weren't expecting it, we kind of knew what to do. And it comes out of your recessed memory and you figure out what, what to do. So I think that's the that's the key in, in business, is understanding that not every day is the same. Uh, business is seasonal. Are we prepared for the seasonal uh, um, fluctuations that is, is business? Uh, do we prepare for the for the type time uh, that is peak season for us as a business, and that's inevitably in a retail space, your Christmases, your Father's Day, Mother's Day, um, Valentine's Days, uh, or if you're in, in the ice cream industry, it's summer. Uh, so, so anything, and we call it the execution rhythm, the battle rhythm, and and organisations often aren't fantastic at that, or they make assumptions around that rhythm, which is oh, well, every Christmas it's slow, so let's not put in effort. But when you when you sit down and you do the analytics on that and you realize, well, actually, it's no different. Uh, these ingrained behaviors start to become uh, more uh, obvious. It's like people believe the story of how the business works, not the facts. Uh, so, so again, as, as a fighter pilot, you, you know, very uniquely, fighter pilots create the strategy that they then go out and execute. It's, it's a very strategic military asset. You can cross multiple countries in one mission. You can engage the army, the navy, other air force assets. You're, you're speaking to to many, many different stakeholders with with a diverse amount of capabilities. 
But at the same time, as a fighter pilot, you're also operating the piece of equipment that is going out there to deliver on that strategy. So I think we're some, some value in fighter pilots working within business. It's to help manage this whole optimism bias, this this expectation of leaders that the team they have can can deliver so much more than they than they really can. And because those leaders aren't day-to-day executing, they get a bit frustrated and disconnected from uh, their teams. So I think that's a that's a key part of, of building strategy that's that can be flawlessly executed is set yourself up for success in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Now, is it something that you kind of have with fighter pilots and you have the same with someone, say, who's delivering a, a major event, a one-day event, is that you kind of do what a CEO does in a very short period of time. So they CEO might take a whole year or two years to go through the highs and the lows and the the real big challenges, but when you're a fighter pilot, you're moving at 100 miles, you know, kilometers per hour, you know, hundreds of kilometers per hour. You've got to be able to react sensibly and calmly. You know, what sort of strategies do you put in place to ensure that you can actually um, cope and deal with those changes at a really, really fast speed? And can they trans- uh, how do they translate across to the CEOs? It's an interesting point you make that fighter pilots operate in a, in a small window, they fly, fly a mission. But they fly missions every day. They they have a a cycle of, of activities they need to do, and most fighter pilots have other jobs and activities they also need to participate in. And as an as I've been an entrepreneur now for fifteen years, I don't buy that that this cop out that people make, which is oh what you do is very different. It's not. Fighter pilots do something that has a start, a middle, and an end. So does a CEO. A CEO has a day, a cycle that, that a business operates in. It's just they don't think that they don't necessarily think that way. Entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs have a have a have a far more project focus because they typically operate on a capital cycle where they know they've got a certain amount of capital for a certain period and they need to get a certain amount done. Uh, whereas within the CEO, uh, it's a slightly different, more administrative mindset. But it doesn't it doesn't have to be. So I think what what you what do you learn from fighter pilots? Well, fighter pilots make a lot of decisions. That's part of what you do. You have to because the aircraft's always moving forward. They don't have to be all good. They just have to be decisions that keep you alive and, and allow you to operate operate the aircraft. And when you have to make decisions, a lot of decisions at, a, at high speed, it gives you a framework in which you can use to make less decisions at a, at a lower speed. Uh, it still has to be a decision. But the key you learn is this, and, and this is about creating situational awareness. Um, that situational awareness is the clarity that enables you to make better better decisions. What's going on around me, and how can I either um, optimize what's going on or survive in an environment where I'm I'm, I'm barely capable of of exploiting? Uh, the methodology fighter pilots use for that it's what we would call the uh, OODA loop. It was developed back in the 60s in, at the Top Gun Academy, and what the OODA loop is all about. And I learned I figured this out more as I got older, not when I was a fighter pilot. I was just taught to do it. I didn't really understand it, but now I kind of understand it. And it's it's all about observing the environment around you, orientating yourself into a position to take advantage of that, what you've just observed, making a decision, then acting on it, and then observing again, well, what just happened? And then, and then maneuvering ourselves into another position to take advantage of it. So it's a decision-making cycle. Um, when we use that as, as business owners, or CEOs, what it allows us to do is is learn more quickly from our decisions, and and also when we make a bad decision to reverse it. And sometimes there's bad or worse decisions. Sometimes there just aren't any good decisions, uh, and and it allows us just to to make it. And sometimes, 
and I know this as a business owner, making a decision whether that's making it someone redundant, having performance issues as, as, as people or writing off a bad debt. Uh, sometimes it's to make those decisions more quickly means we can move forward in a way that's more purposeful. And, and business and CEOs are always struggling with the methods and cautious approach to, run, to running a big business and being impulsive or making rash decisions. So I think what you learn as a fighter pilot with the OODA loop and situational awareness is how to find that sweet spot in between much quicker, where we're making quicker decisions, but they're not rash, and we're considering enough, but not too much, that it gives us analysis paralysis. So arousal is associated with the performance of a human being. You know, what was your kind of your routine prior to each mission flight to ensure that you had the right level of arousal, focus, mental clarity, and performance? We we operate on that peak stress curve. You have to be able to be right at the top there. If you're if you're over the top, your performance drops, or if you're under aroused, then yeah, you're unable to um, execute what you need to do. And it certainly wasn't a case that we nailed that every time. And again, with age and looking back more purposefully, I could see how I could have done it better. But the but the methodology that we we used was that sequence of of planning, briefing, executing the mission, and debriefing. So in the plan. We started our focus, so we, we we planned as a team. We were in the same room as a team, and we we roughed out what we were going to do, and that would normally be the 80% plan. Then we move into the briefing stage, where we communicate the plan to the team, based on the most current information. And it's through that briefing we're, we're focusing that little bit more, and it's something that organisations do terribly. And to be brutally honest, so do sports teams. This is the the lost opportunity for organisations to really focus their their people. And to do that, you've got to communicate the same every time. You've got to be in a sequence that builds a habit for people to switch their brains on into the execution phase. We move into the execution phase. For me, particularly, my ultimate focus is when I started the jet, and when I we, we used to do a flight control check, we'd flick a switch, and the and the and the aircraft would check all the flight controls. It's an electronic connection between the flight controls and the air data computers. And when you do that, the airplane comes to life, and all the um, all of the flight controls start jittering around and the aircraft bounces around on the undercarriage and the pilots, you're doing nothing. You're just a passenger. And for me, this thing went to life where, you know, the old girls come come, come to life now. Like I'm responsible for this asset. And that really helped me, me focus. But what it also did was it helped me understand that today I wasn't focused. Today I'm, not, I'm just not switching on and I need to more proactively become focused. Then when we move out to the area, we carry out a weapons checklist. We turn the weapons on. We know that the aircraft's gone from a from a dormant state to a live state. So all of the explosives on the aircraft are one stage closer to going kabang. Uh, and then when we we're, were in the in the fight, we we knew that at a distance from another aircraft, we had more time. But we knew on this marching timeline at a closing velocity of three thousand kilometers per hour, there was a critical window where we really had to switch on. So all of that's mapped out and all of that is trained to, and, we, and it never changes. It's the same sequence, the same process every single time. It's just tweaked based on the threat on the day, our situational awareness at the time. So 80% of what we did is mapped out, which meant the 20% where we had to make critical decisions, we're able to do that because the basics were all looked after. So, yeah, I like that, you know, you've, that, that whole process around beforehand and going into routine. I mean, it's not, it, you don't always see that in the executive world or the corporate world where you see people try and get into that rhythm, get into that routine so that people are 
are used to it, right? People don't like change. So if you can get into that constant routine, it's much easier to prepare for the day ahead or prepare for that project, isn't it? Absolutely. For large for large organizations, they do have an element of that, but it's all, always in their crisis response or disaster response element of the business. And my, my, with my coaching, I'm, my, I'm sort of saying, well, you kind of do it anyway. So why don't we just bring a bit of that into your, into our day today? And you're certainly in business. Yeah, it's it, it is slower. It's a slower beast. You don't have to move at the pace that fighter pilots move every day. I mean, it's a $15 million investment to be a fighter pilot. So a business can't afford that. So it's unrealistic to set the bar there. But what we can do is just use the process and you don't have to be as focused. You don't have to communicate as well. But if we just tweak that a little tiny bit, uh, because the baseline is, is, is so much lower, the increase in performance that you see in the first three months or so is, is actually quite eye-opening. So, you know, when people watch, we watch movies and, you know, they involve fighter pilots in it and I'm sure you get a lot in the Top Gun yeah, aspect. Yeah, they're movies, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, and, and, not, uh, definitely not real insights into the world of fighter pilots. Oh, I'm sure. So so we see a lot of testosterone. We see the uh, the ego come out, the superhero come to surface when they have finished a mission, um, especially if, they're, if they determine it as being really successful. So what emotions would you feel at the end of each kind of... Um, or what, what would fighter pilots, you know, generally, what, what sort of emotions do they go through the end of a mission and how do they control them? If you, if you spoke to most fighter pilots' partners, they'd say they're the most emotionless robots on, on the planet. Uh, being a fighter pilot is a very, it's a very clinical role. Um, everything is dealt with very, it's very factually uh, assessed. And because we debrief after every mission where we proactively review our own individual performance, um, it's it's all quite calm. I mean, obviously, there's times when we're away on exercise or you're in a more operational environment, there's a bit more emotion uh, to it. And if you have a great mission, then obviously there's a lot of happy faces when you when you come off. But the, the behavior is very controlled. Uh, and it's like that, it's built that way purposefully in, in that culture because we have to husband that peak stress graph. And if we husband that peak stress graph walking back from the aircraft, taking off our kit, the way we talk to each other, then when we really have to rely on it, we're ready to go. You can't you, you can't teach yourself to operate on the peak of the stress curve if you only do it when you need to do it. You have to train yourself to do that. So we're seeing people more empowered to speak out about stress, overwhelm, burnout in the workplace. And I can imagine, you know, we talked about a little bit of times there where there are high levels of stress in the Air Force. Do they do anything around to attempt that and will prevent that stress and burnout where reactions and decision making at speed are, um, is an understatement? We we look after each other and we're because we do our aviation medicine component uh, as part of our training where you learn about the cues of fatigue, you learn about stress, you learn about the body's responses. We do tend to look out for each other and, and we manage that. But equally, throughout our training, it's it's about pushing our ability to deal with stress and pressure on every single mission. We're, we're never thrown in the deep end. You're, every mission is just an incremental increase on the one before, and the instructors are taught to push certain pilots and, and push to the point where you start to make mistakes, then bring them back again. So you have this conditioning to stress that that very rarely do you do you see a fighter pilot um, burned out or or, or stressed. Um, Typically, though, we would we would 
manage the program. So if you're doing highly complex and involved missions, you normally have a day off, so it's every second day. But in the routine training environment, you'll fly once, twice a day uh, because it's routine and that's your job. It's just what you do. You're a fighter pilot. So it's not peak stress for someone else just becomes your flatline. Uh, and, and again, that's a $15 million training program to, to achieve that. And I think with athletes uh, particularly, uh, it, in team sports more so than individuals because as an individual, you've there's so much more that goes on inside you as an individual in the way that you process things and it's it's very complex. Uh, but when you operate as a, as a team, there's a lot that we can learn from that fighter pilot environment uh, in terms of managing peak stress as a team. And in terms of building this positive peer group where we always debrief as a pair, as a minimum, there's always two fighter pilots, two aircraft in a formation. So, you know, whatever you do, there's always going to be someone critiquing you. Uh, and that's great because what it teaches you is to critique yourself. We're, we're a single seat fighter. So you critique yourself first. And then if you miss something, your your buddy, your wingman uh, helps debrief you. And then that just leverages up into, into missions where you might have 60, 70, 80 aircraft where you debrief as 80 aircraft and you break down from 80 into 40 and then 40 to 20, 20 to 10, all the way down till it's just two of you. And you take lessons all the way down through the organization. And, and it's really interesting when you look at organizational reviews, just how poorly that connection exists. It's it's done at a very high level or it's done at a very granular level, but infrequently are all the connecting parts explored in that. And it's, it's more so what did we do organizationally rather than well, what did we do individually and what can we learn from our individual performance? And there's huge potential for, for teams and organizations to enhance their performance there, but by building that positive peer group where culturally we accept failures and mistakes, we learn from them and, and we celebrate them. It, it, we very rarely pat ourselves on the back in a fighter squadron. We're always looking at the things we could do better and, and we reward the fighter pilots that learn from those mistakes. They, that's, that's the key here. Not the stuff you did well. That's your job. You, you're you're here to achieve 98% of the time. And when you do that, that's that's your job. What we want to do is learn from the 2%. And and by doing that, we maintain 98%. We never push it further than that. But we don't allow ourselves to drop below 98% either. So we're gonna we're just gonna go off on um, just a slight little change here, and then we'll come back to you know sort of how the the, the fighter pilot and what they learn then how that applies into the business. So all good things come to an end at some point. What was your career as a fighter pilot cut short at the age of 30 years old? I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis and that's an autoimmune disorder where your body just gets a little bit confused and it attacks uh, the healthy tissue in your body and ankylosing spondylitis typically affects uh, young men and it attacks the spine primarily. Uh, and when you fly these aircraft with a heavy helmet on, uh, when your head weighs up to 40 kilograms, when you're pulling seven and a half G, and the compression on your spine, it, it, it's not a great environment. And eventually I just couldn't fly anymore. So I was medically uh, medically discharged. And when I left, I guess there were two things I, I probably needed to do in life. Um, it was a good timing because it's 30, so there's a bit of time there to go and do some stuff and make some mistakes. Uh, so one thing I, I really wanted to do was was try and run my own business or set up my own business. And the second one was to really go and see how I could handle a real combat or a, or a hostile environment. And that that's what encouraged me and, and my best mate at the time, uh, Tom, uh, to go into Afghanistan and start our business there. Uh, and that was that was a fascinating journey for me. And I learned so much from that. I learned 
a lot about being accommodating of different cultures, the complexity of human beings, doing multi, entering and, and uh, delivering on multi-million dollar contracts with no business background at all, the art of negotiation, and everything over in, the, in that part of the world isn't structured like here. There's, there's no contracts, there's no framework of law to enforce anything. Everything is just genuinely needed, and, and you genuinely have to deliver, and if you don't, then you don't get paid, you don't win the contract. So it was a really raw environment to, to learn about business. And uh, I learned a lot over there, um, some great lessons and some bad lessons. Uh, and that, that really set me up. My ADHD, unfortunately, means every time I start a business, about three years, I sell it or move on. Uh, so I, I sold that, moved into property development and moved into modular construction, built a hotel, uh, which is Stallone, um, or the company I, I, fit, I set up with that, Stallone's, uh, moved into um, publishing on the back of that and then Part of that journey and the most fascinating part and the bit I'm enjoying the most was falling into Afterburner uh, and a, 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 a group of fighter pilots around the world that deliver programs uh, around how fighter pilots can help businesses. And to date, over 25 years, uh, we've seen over 3,000 companies run through the programs. Of those 3,000, there's a few hundred that have uh, continue to utilize and employ the afterburner programs over 10, 20 years. And really, it comes down to that different perspective. And people struggle to talk about performance. Performance inside an organization is a very sensitive sensitive subject. Um, so what afterburner does, it, it, it really takes off the shelf. Here's ultimate human performance here. It's got, it's got nothing to do with the individuals. We're just products of a system. Uh, but the product, what that system delivers is something that's that's very, very high performance. So if we take the system and we help companies implement it, then by default, they should also have the benefit of having high performing individuals. Uh, and that's what happens. Uh, I'm running a program for a supermarket chain in a couple of weeks. And during the phone call, the, the person organizing it said, oh, I couldn't remember the name of your company or something about fighter pilots. We used We utilized you seven years ago. She said, I left that company, uh, and she said, after seven years, we still use that language, that fighter pilot language in, in everything that we did. And to me, to, to participate in a three-hour experiential pro learning program and for it to take hold in an organization for seven years reinforces for me that the content and the, and the methodology, the flex methodology, the flawless execution method, is it really works. Uh, and, and I get those stories and, and that feedback all the time, uh, and I've only been doing this for f for five years. Uh, and I guess where my my journey diverges a little bit from the afterburner journey is uh, is my my experience personally with business uh, outside of being a fighter pilot and bringing those those two worlds together. So that's allowed me to to probably look at it the whole construct of business and fighter pilots from a, from a slightly different perspective and to see where the worlds overlap and where there's areas that they're just not going to overlap. Uh, so it's been a it's been a really a fascinating journey, and and it boils down to psychology and the psychology of how how people behave and how difficult it is to take accountability for our own actions, but at the same time how liberating it is when we do, and and that's the crux of it. It's really funny working inside an organisation at the at the CEO level or the executive level. A lot of the a lot of the first couple of months is therapy. It, it really is about. Well, I thought this is what we're going to do. No, that was what we're going to do. Well, I thought we were going to do this, and well, I thought we were going to do that, and and working and massaging through what everyone thought they were going to do around. Well, what are we actually going to do? What is one thing we can do in the next three months? 
Uh, and, you know, we, we hear language after six weeks, which like, that's the most cathartic experience we've ever been through. We've never had such clarity before. Uh, and, and for the people in the, in the room, it's a journey. But for, for me and for the other fighter pilots, it's, it's just what we do. It's just the way we think. It's, it's actually dead easy uh, and, and for us. Uh, but that's what you get from all of that training. It, it, it becomes second nature. So can you elaborate, uh, you took there around the flex methodology, can you elaborate on that and and what it does? So flex is, is the way afterburners packaged up what fighter pilots do. Um, and, and, it, and it hinges on this methodology called PBED, which is plan brief, execute debrief. And what it effectively says is it, this whole agile movement that's taking the world by storm now, it was all based on plan brief, execute debrief. It's all based on the oodling. John Sutherland is a fighter pilot, and he was one of the authors of the of the uh, Agile Manifesto that's that's taking the world by storm. But really, what it says in broad terms is, you need to plan and have a common objective that you all understand and you all agree can be achieved. Then every day we've got to talk about it to make sure we're still on track, nothing's changed, or if something has changed, what are we going to do about it? Not as an individual, as a team, because what we start to see inside in human nature is every day we just move off at a tangent because. We're highly complex individuals. Even we, we, we don't know what we're doing half the time. So every day we don't come together as a team. We're, we're diverging away from that common goal. So by briefing, we, we come back and have a bit of a think about, a, a bit of a conversation around what's happening today. And then the execution piece is, well, now that we have the clarity of objective, now that we've spoken about it today, am I maintaining a focus on that? And am I, am I avoiding distraction? And all of these tangential things that happen every day uh, which happen as a byproduct of us not having clear objectives and not communicating effectively. So the default function of coping in an organization, those first two steps are kind of missing or if they're they're not missing, they're just too vague or, or the expectations aren't aligned. So so what we talk about in execution is is really, look, just do something. And if you haven't got a good objective and you're not communicating effectively, we're going to learn it on the next step and that's debriefing. And debriefing is where we ask ourselves, three really simple questions. What's the result today? Where, where do we want to be relative to the plan, our objective? What's the reason we're achieving this result? And it's all about a gap in performance. In businesses, we get very, in any human endeavor, we, we get caught up about the individual performance. Why aren't you achieving the target? Why aren't you achieving a target? Uh, but as fighter pilots, we know, well, often the target's wrong or it's overly ambitious or we wasn't clear enough. So we investigate that gap in performance and, and sometimes we bring the target down and sometimes we've got to push the performance up. And that's the, that's the final question we ask, the response. It's called the three R's to debriefing. And the response is, what am I going to do tomorrow to close that gap? Am I going to set a more realistic target or am I going to do something that will increase my output or performance? And when you get into that cycle of thinking, and for me, and for most fighter pilots, it's not a day-by-day -day thing. It's an hour-by-hour thing. We're, we're constantly reviewing every decision that we make and in the cockpit you'll be reviewing that decision on a second by second basis i made the decision what was the action that happened what am i going to do about it what's the next decision i'm going to make uh, so so what you find is when you think that way you're kind of ahead of everyone else you're, you're you're always ahead of the conversation you're always investigating you're doing your analysis on the run analysis isn't something that sits by itself where we do one week of analysis make a decision wait a week and see what happens analysis and decision making is in perpetual motion uh, and that allows us to be agile. That allows us to, to, to change our course of action 
quickly and in small steps that are reversible rather than these huge investment decisions and big chunks of of time where we make a bad decision and we wait too long to review it and it sort of spirals a little bit out of control. So that that's what the flawless execution is about. It's not perfect execution. We're not going to be perfect, but set the plan, set the target, inform the team that's going to be part of, of the execution team to deliver on it, deliver on it and stay focused on it. And if it's not going the way we want it to do, let's debrief it and figure out how we're going to change that objective. And the cycle continues. Yeah, I like, like that approach. You know, why do you think people spend such little time around debriefing a project mission or goal? Typically, it's because there's no time. It's not important. As fighter pilots, we say debriefing the mission is more important than the mission. That, that's that's how much we prioritize this 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 meeting, um, and that it's excuses. No one wants to sit down and talk because everyone makes excuses. Uh, and, and my response to that is. The reason that everyone's making excuses is because the leadership hasn't set a clear agenda for everyone to deliver on. You've, you've, you've created the ambiguity which allows the excuse matrix to be brought out. Uh, and, and that's really what it, what it boils down to. And, and, and I, I sort of say, I say to people, look, you know, we count from one to 100 without even thinking about it today, right? You brush your teeth without even thinking about it. The fact that you can do those very simple tasks is the product of years of training. You learned to count to one to 100 over a few years there. You learned to brush your teeth over a few years. Yet we want to go and implement some incredibly complex strategy where we need 100,000 people to execute it. And we, we, we explain it in words that no one understands, yet we expect it to happen. And it's just never going to happen. So, so coming back to that simplicity and help, helping leaders to think simply and use efficiency in their language. What's one thing that you can say that can enable hundreds of people to go and do their job that's that's what this process helps people do and it, and it helps spread the workload and spread the targets uh, particularly through large organizations uh, down into every executable element of the business so what habits or routines do you do every day that allow you to execute flawlessly for me it's distraction for me it's having a chip in my, in my mind which is look you're distracted Things aren't going the way you want to do. What, what's happening right now? Uh, and, and what that boils down to is I don't really have a clear plan for today. And personally, I'm going through a cycle now where I've bitten off more than I can chew. I'm suffering my own optimism bias in terms of, uh, of too many businesses to run, too many opportunities, uh, pursuing them all, saying, yes, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I try and coach people what not to do. So I have, I'm proactively going through a phase of what we call task shedding, which is I, I am removing uh, distractions from my life, and part of that is is selling my publishing business, which I'm currently undertaking. Uh, and once I've done that, I can go back and focus in the in the coaching world. Uh, and and I guess what happened to me was, after developing my technique with coaching, with keynote speaking, it became easy. I was looking for another challenge, but that other challenge meant that my what I found easy before was now starting to also become a challenge because my attention to detail was was being lost. So. So once again, and as I say, you always learn in the video about this process is it doesn't matter how old you are, how experienced you are, how, how much you think you've got things under control. It always comes back to that, boo, mate, you, you've made life complicated again. You're not keeping things simple. Sit down, plan, brief, execute, debrief. So the objective for me for 2020, uh, no no particular time, was to consolidate into my, into my, my vertical, which is all about fighter pilot stuff and flying. So I've... I'm going back to flying. I've got a flying job, which is as a pretend fighter pilot, 
flying threat aircraft against real fighter fighter pilots, and cons- and consolidating uh, that experience into into my speaking and coaching um, business now. So that that's how I applied. I I bit off more than I can chew. My, I was not achieving. I was not executing flawlessly. I was not achieving my goals. Uh, and and th- by applying that method um, strategically, I'm I'm slowly getting myself back to where I need to be. So how important is exercise and nutrition in helping you lead your your businesses and and what you do to say you know you, you now want to focus on what you're doing? It's incredibly important, and I, and I didn't really probably appreciate that till five years ago. That one of the challenges of the ankylosing spondylitis is it it's very much how your gut and your immune system reacts to to nutrition. Uh, and uh, I was fairly blasé in, in what I ate through my 30s, but uh, I've got to a point now where I'm on a plant-based diet. I've, I've gone through a process of, under, of understanding the food proteins that react well in my body, how my body metabolizes um, sugars, amino acids, uh, and what I need to what I need to eat. And I've also learned that I don't need to eat much at all to be functional. And actually, the, the less I eat, the, the better I, the more energy I have. So nutrition has been a huge part of of um, of my journey and, and and a new part of, of the journey, but that's been a, a plan brief, execute debrief as well, uh, and and it's all about bringing in expertise to figure out certain elements. So for me, it was expertise around my body. I had a lot of aches and pains. I had a lot of issues with um, uh, the ankylosing attacks, the the tendons, the cartilage, the soft tissue in your bones, and a three-year rehabilitation project with a strength strength and conditioning coach who also had a physiotherapist background. Uh, that tidied all of that up, and I, I've gone from from probably having 12 or 13 touch points on my body down to one or two uh, that I haven't been able to resolve, but I can I can manage now. Um, sleep is incredibly important, uh, and one of the things I, I started to to lose as a result of being overtaxed with these businesses was I was waking up at three four o'clock in the morning. If my my cortisol levels were too high, I was uh, thinking and processing information. And I just had to, and I, and I was doing that on holidays as well as during the work hours. So then that obviously inhibits your ability to be to be fit, to go to the gym. You haven't got the energy levels, and it's and it starts to get into a cycle. But but the beauty of this, of and again, I don't call it flex. I don't call it the OODA loop. I just think and act the way I was taught as a fighter pilot, and and it just teaches me that something's not right here. I'm not I'm not achieving this well-being or or, or this life contentment goal that I've set myself. What is it? And and as hard as it is to come and say it's it's your business, it's the, it's something that some of the decisions you made as an entrepreneur. As hard as it, hard as it is to 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 do that and to sell a business before it's probably as mature as it needs to be, you, you just have to do it. You have to get back to health and well-being. You have to get back to life contentment as as the goal. Otherwise, everything goes. We all know smart people have great answers, but the successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, that's a good question. And I think in some respects, every day. I mean, I'm one of those people that's lived a, a very fulfilled life. And, and I'm probably at an age now where I appreciate that. I, I've done everything I wanted to do. I've, I, I'm a qualified skipper. I know how to sail yachts. I have my, my boat license. I'm a pilot. I'm a civilian pilot as well. I've raced cars. I've lived in the Middle East. I've skied. I've, I've skied my whole life, snow skied. I've, I've rode. Uh, there's not, and maybe it's rel- relatively selfish existence, but there's really nothing I've ever wanted to do that I, that I haven't done. Uh, in terms of, uh, look, I guess for me, what's the first things that I've done? It's it's my first child, my son, 13, as he does all of his firsts. 
that's the first time I've done that as a parent. Uh, and I and I find the evolution as they grow from being kids into into men that your role becomes more complex and and a little bit like I remember back when I was learning from my instructors what feedback and how I took things well and when I took things badly. So every time I guess there's a friction point or every time I feel myself I'm not being the best father is is a first for me and I've got to figure out you know how how to do that and and with this business as well with with Australian Aviation and the and the publishing business uh, for 18 months went really well when I could put the effort in and then I I started to see myself crushing under the pressure I, I haven't done as, as well there so I'm probably at a point where that's the first time I've sold and unloaded a business that hasn't gone as well as, as I wanted to and it's a bit touch and go so uh, they're all first as well but again uh, and, and the beauty of this way of thinking is when it becomes emotional uh, you can rationalize it and and and, uh, and I think when I came back from Afghanistan with a little bit of PTSD and and, and, and work with a psychologist around cognitive behavioral therapy. What I realized was the, the way that I was taught to thought as a fighter pilot is it's, it's a cognitive way in which to modify your behavior and manage your emotions because it always comes back to this rationality and logic around a goal um, and then reviewing rationally your performance. So, so, so I really have found it great in high stress moments under this current business to get back to a rational place in you know, you've been here before, you've been in high stress situations, you've been in, in areas where your p- performance or events outside your control haven't been what you want it to be, you'll be okay, you'll get there. Uh, and the worst case scenario is not the worst case scenario. It's not, no one's going to die. Uh, no, even if, if, if it, even if it completely implodes and, and, it, and it couldn't be the worst outcome that you could imagine for a business, it's just a business. And, and that's what I love about the process. It always grounds you back in reality. What is the one question that you would love to solve? It, why people aren't the best versions of themselves? What, why do we make excuses? Why do we have to create conflict and, and, and hold on to belief systems that other people don't believe in? And the, the, the inability to, te- to see two sides of the, sto- the story, and for me, the people in my life experience that are able to do that are all well-traveled. They've all experienced different cultures. They understand the ins and outs. The expat community, and I've spent a lot of time as an expat flying in the UK, living in the Middle East, living in Europe, uh, living in Dubai. You just learn to be very accommodative in everything that you do. And for me, I guess, you know, you don't spend too much time on this because it's just end up in a spiral. Um, it's, yeah, why why can't we just be more accommodating? It just why can't we save the planet? I mean, it's why, why do we have to destroy and use plastic? It's um, I, I guess that's it. And 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 for me, that comes back to that question: is well, if we're truly the best versions of ourselves, uh, then and we we we're able to manage our insecurities and manage our our the, the things that we're not so proud of, then surely we'll, we'll do a better place running the planet and and living together. So final question here, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Being average, I think, being content with average. And and when you're content with average, everything is a bonus. Um, nothing, there's a saying, I can't even remember I heard, heard it from somebody, but it's something that stuck with me and it's nothing's ever as good or as it, nothing's ever as good or as bad as it seems. Uh, and, and for me, that's been wonderful, you know. Uh, it means that you, 
temper your emotions and you temper your behavior when something's going really well in terms of you, you don't practice hubris. You, you're, you're prepared that that's not always the way. And then when something goes really bad, it's not that bad either. It's just bad right now. Um, so I think, I think for me, that's, that's key that you don't have to be super happy. You don't have to be super miserable. Just content is a really powerful word, I think. It, uh, you know, you shared some wonderful insights today. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Look, at this point in time, the best way uh, to connect with me is on, on my is on my LinkedIn. Uh, I, I'm sort of building some programs uh, in, the, in the personal development space. Uh, but from a corporate space, whether you're a sports team, uh, a corporate, a corporate entity, uh, your uh, an NGO. If you're working with groups of people and you want to work better as a group of people, without doubt, Afterburner it, and the immersive ex- experiential programs that we run uh, are the way to go. And if you're anywhere in the world, we can get fighter pilots and those programs uh, into your organisation. And don't take it from me. You can see on our Google uh, reviews that our rankings are 4.9 out of 5. In the US, the net promoter score for Afterburner is world-class events, world-class programs. And your teams and your individuals will be using this language well after after we leave. We've taken teams to the Super Bowl. We've got NRL teams off the bottom of the ladder. Everything that an Afterburner program touches, you always see an increase in performance. Now, it's up to the organization as to how far they want to take it. But, but there is a guarantee. Uh, so, so to find us, uh, Google Fighter Pilots Afterburner or afterburner.com.au here in Australia, afterburner.com anywhere else in the world. And we're just happy to have a chat. We'll ask you a very simple question. What is it you really want to achieve? Would you like to get there quicker? Yeah, we can help you with that. Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed learning about your, your whole life fascination with aviation diving into the world of being a fighter pilot and just thriving in that environment where every day is just going to take you a little bit step further, the next step further. And it's that constant gradual improvement in performance. I liked how you you discussed the the process of how do you um, put together a mission, that analysis of it, the debrief afterwards, and how important the debrief is and how important that is to Uh, any company or CEO or performing person. Uh, It's awesome to see the work that you're doing inside companies and helping them realize what their real target should be and starting to narrow their focus a little bit. It's so easy to get uh, expand out and try and take on the whole world, but staying focused and having just that the whole team together thinking about one thing and how they can implement every single day is really, really important. You've had an extraordinary life. Um, so far and we look forward to seeing how you progress over the next few years especially this year as you look to consolidate down to what's really important to you um, so that you can be back on your a-game every single day so thank you very much awesome craig it's been a real pleasure i uh, had had a wonderful time all the best for you too on this week's active ceo performance tip we're talking about create a ripple effect with purpose Have you become too focused on yourself and you don't feel fulfilled? Try focusing on something bigger than just yourself. You determine what your company's or your own real purpose is in life. Your why or your company's why. You know, what work can you do to serve that purpose 
and leave a positive mark or dent on the world. Here are three questions to ask yourself. Number one, what makes you come alive? Number two, what are your innate strengths? Number three, where do you add greatest value? Now, if you're still struggling to identify your why, here are three more questions to ask yourself. Number one, what do people come to ask for help on and thank you for? Number two, what would you do that you love doing that you would do every day without a paycheck? And number three, if you found out that you only had one year left to live, what would you imagine yourself doing? It's now time for you to do some self-reflection and find your clarity on your why. Thank you for listening to a next level leadership conversation with Christian Bacusis on episode 96, leading out of the danger zone on the Active CEO podcast. Now that chaos and frantic nature of the past few weeks in COVID-19 has passed. How are you planning your productivity and performance over the next few weeks and months? I have found the Productivity Performance Planner to be highly effective in providing clarity, keeping you on task and focused each day. In an Excel spreadsheet, you can create columns for planned activity, area of business, desired outcome, urgency, impact, the number of hours it will take, start date, target date, a column for completion, and then debrief notes. This provides structure and allows you to easily project manage and quickly identify your top three things to do each day. I've used this effectively as an athlete and as a CEO and business owner. If you would like a copy of the Productivity Performance Planner or you would like some support with your leadership performance, then please contact me at craig at nrg, the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of the www.nrg, number two, perform.com website. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.